This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm And welcome, welcome, welcome to tonight's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, the approximately 157th show we've been doing (laughs) since 2015. And this is my very first welcome, the first time I've had to welcome the show. Get well soon, Bushy, we're a man down tonight. But Jed and I are here, manning the stand. We are. Yeah, I think I might have given Bushy the man flu. Uh oh! Uh oh! How are you feeling this week, Jed? Are you well? I'm good. Yeah, I'm really good. I've got a uh, new eye, so I can almost see who's on the other side of the panel. It's really good. You've got a new eye. <laughs> Tell us about your eye. One new eye. <laughs> oh, I had a cataract done, so I'm um, my head's getting itself around having now one long eye and one short eye and that sort of thing until I get the next one done. But um, yeah, it's all good. I remember when my granddad had his cataracts done. I was there when he came back from hospital. And I don't think he'd realised that he'd been seeing in black and white for a long time. And then he was watching a telly and absolutely mesmerised by the colour. It was amazing. He was like, that man has a blue tie. And he looked at the flowers outside and they were red. And he was just absolutely overjoyed by being able to see colour. It was gorgeous. I must admit I keep walking around reading number plates. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> I can. <laughs> Not quite as romantic there, Jed, no. but useful nonetheless. <laughs> yes. So tonight's show, we are going to be talking to, um, well, I'll just introduce you tonight. We have Katie O'Brien and Erin O'Donnell um, in the studio. So welcome to you both. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming in. So we're going to have a little chat tonight about the law and particularly the um, rights of the natural world and what's happening in the legal space around that. Um, so I will just read out your bio so we know who we're talking to. So we'll start off with you, Katie. Katie is a lecturer in the Faculty of Law and an associate of the Castan Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. And prior to entering academia, she practiced, practiced as a solicitor in native title, acting for native title claim groups in both Western Australia and Victoria. And she holds a Master of Laws and Environmental Law from Macquarie University and a PhD from Monash University focusing on the re- legal recognition of Indigenous water rights. So welcome, Katie. Thank you. It's good to be here. And Erin, Erin O'Donnell is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne Law School. Having recently completed her doctorate there, she's based in the Centre for Resources, Energy and Environmental Law and has written a number of articles touching on the legal rights of nature. Good to be here too. And I believe, I think we read one of your articles in the conversation, Erin. Fantastic. Yes, I was here um, last year talking to Amy Mullins about that. Ah, should have listened to that for a bit of research. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So 
I'd like to start off with a chat around the basics. So in the, lead, in the lead up to this show, I've been trying to get my head around law and I've been having lessons in law from my mother and father-in-law. They've been trying to you know, give me an idea about how laws are created, how, what happens in Parliament. It's been enlightening. That's, that's English law. Engli- well, yes, it's yeah. English law, but it's this Australian law is anyway. based on English yeah. law. So I'll be interested to hear from you two. Just let's start at the very beginning. What's the point of it? Why do we have laws? What's the purpose of the law? Well, I guess the purpose of the law is to, you know, um, have not have arbitrary decision-making and, you know, people being subject to arbitrary decisions, basically. So lots of different people having different laws and getting treated in different ways. Is that the basic premise of the law? Is that why we have it? It's why we've codified it. So law has emerged in two different ways. So you were talking about um, talking to your your mother and father-in-law about how English law is is made in Parliament. So the law has a very long history, going back sort of a thousand years and more, um, in the common law. And that's the law that has emerged through judicial decision-making. And that was historically um, fairly arbitrary. Judges would make decisions based on how they were feeling at the time, um, based on whether they liked the look of the people before them, um, whether they'd had enough to eat at lunch, all these sorts of things. Some of that is still affecting judge-made law today. But what we've got a lot more of now is statute. And statute is a way of linking law back into the democratic process. So statute is, is a way of codifying basically our societal values, what we think is is the right way to operate, what kind of powers we want to give to government, um, what kind of rights we think ordinary people should have and how those rights can be enforced. I'll, um, I'll lend you a really good book that um, I've almost finished reading by Julian Burnside, um, which is from a lay person's perspective, a really good explanation of the law and he goes right back to Magna Carta and, um, you know, how the law was formed and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it's um, it's very interesting, I have to say. So, Erin, you mentioned that it's about codifying societal values. So who determines what those values are? So that's a really good question. I think, I think they come from two quite distinct sources. So there's the historical sense of the law. Um, so the values emerge from that, um, that sort of judicial judge-made, decision-based law. Um, and that reflects... Often the values of the specific judges, but also it reflects historical precedent. Um, it reflects the way that judges perceive the the shift in values. Um, so I think one of the things we should ask Katie about is the Mabo decision as a way of reflecting shifting values um, and our changing understanding um, of the way that the law works. But the other thing... I I would just bring into that as well is is statute, um, which is passed by Parliament, is then obviously the result of a democratic process. So that ideally should reflect the values of the voters. Um. Okay. So we have statutes passed by Parliament and historical precedents. Now, when we start to think about environmental law, there's a couple of things that are going to be playing into the way that laws have been made. Well, the first is that historical precedents aren't that useful potentially when we're looking at a very different way of living. A lot more people, lots of different challenges, particularly around environmental challenges, things that we probably couldn't have foreseen whatsoever. And when you base things on past decisions, you're never, I would imagine, catching up with what's current and what the problems are currently. And the second is the statute passed by Parliament, um, the things which 
uh, are influenced by politics. Now, who stands up, who lobbies for the rights or for the values that aren't determined by uh, economics? I guess that really comes into... We were having a bit of a chat about this before we came in here today. That really depends on the way we think that laws are made. And there's two schools of thought on that. So one school of thought says laws and regulation come about because people get together and they say, what is it that we as a society want? What is it that we really want to protect? And what is it that is vulnerable? So who are the minority groups? Um, Who are those who would struggle to make their voices heard? And what is it that we collectively want our laws to be? And does that happen? Who are those people? So... I, like in an ideal world, that should be Parliament. That should be Parliament saying, "Look, this is the the will of the people," and we, you know, we campaigned on these various um, political promises, and now we're actually making good on them because that's what people told us they wanted. So I think that's, in on the one hand, that's a fairly idealistic way of thinking about things, but it actually does reflect the way that a lot of our environmental laws have actually come about um, because there has been this sense of we want to protect the environment, we want to protect um, the human right to a healthy environment, although that's something that we don't actually really have in Australia, but we do respect um, the need for clean water and clean air and and the right to live in a non-polluted environment. So a lot of those early modern environmental law statutes did arise in that kind of protect the vulnerable do what is right from a public interest perspective. But of course, as you say, there are there are lobbyists, um, there are people who actively seek to create laws of a specific kind and there is this whole theory around the making of laws and regulation that says they only happen because of competition between these different competing voices and that there are no grand plans to create specific laws, they just emerge as a result of this competition. It sounds like free market yeah, economics. Yeah, that's very much, it's proposed by free market economist thinkers. Um, so they're, they're very much of the idea that maybe we shouldn't even try to direct. It should just be whatever comes out. So, and is that working? Well, I think we get a bit of both. I think we get, I think we get some, some really public interest type law and I think we do get regulation that happens as a result of competition. So trying to figure out what you're dealing with um, and being clear about the way in which the law is made and which of those schools of thought you're actually aligning yourself with, I think then makes the case for whether or not you need a really strong voice. Are you competing for an outcome or are you making a really strong case that this specific issue deserves public attention and is a public interest? Mm. And do the laws, or generally, do laws look at specific issues or do we have laws that look across at hum- human issues across the entire world? So when, if we think about, like as an example, um, air pollution, and there might be a specific issue in a specific country around air pollution, like China or something, and a, there might be a law that focuses on tackling that issue in that place. But is there a a global humanitarian position on making sure that everybody in this world has access to healthy air to breathe? It's probably the closest thing would be the Paris Agreement, maybe, at the moment. I would suggest that would be correct, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. there certainly certainly are international agreements and international norms around... um, 
what yeah what sort of standards people accept the Paris Agreement is is probably the most important one when it comes to um, probably not air pollution so much as as climate change um, which as, is a result of a form of air pollution but it's it's not what we traditionally think of as, as air pollution um, in the sense that it's it's mainly the the carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide at at ground level is not so much of a problem but certainly in the atmosphere it becomes a major problem um, that I think yeah there's there's the the Paris agreement um, there are there's a kind of emerging um, a, in international norm around the human right to a healthy environment so that's now been passed as a resolution by the UN to um, to kind of codify this right of human beings to live in an environment that is not actively making them ill so there's there are definitely um, international drivers and, and international norms their ability to hold individual countries to account is limited um, and their ability to hold individual people to account is even more limited. So you're relying on countries to make their own laws to sort of head towards those um, agreements or whatever, yeah. Mm, certainly, certainly in Australia, um, if we've ratified an international agreement of some kind, uh, it, does, it doesn't become binding in Australia until we have domestic law in place. So. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was interested in. Mm. So, so we, we can really do whatever we want until yeah. we decide that we want to do differently. <laughs> um, well, let's think about the, ch- the shifting values. Um, and Erin, you mentioned asking Katie about the Marble Agreement and how that represents a changing attitude. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, the the Mabo decision back in 1992 was very much a landmark um, decision in you know the the history of of Australia because it was the the decision that uh, recognised the um, existence of native title. Um, you know the, that our, our this country had been you know occupied for thousands and thousands of years before it was you know colonised. Yeah. So previous to that, there was. Um, a value that was very different that suggested that there wasn't an equitable outcome and society Mm. decided how did that come about how did that change actually happen through um, a 10-year court battle um, you know led by uh, Eddie Mabo Uh, prior to that uh, basically what the Mabo decision did is it um, it uh, rejected this the idea um, people might be familiar with the term terra nullius that the land was basically belonged to no no one. It was you know, sort of empty, uninhabited, uh, or, or was the uninhabitable with people without in, without laws. But what um, the Mabo decision did said no, that doesn't that does that, that is wrong. You know, uh, we that you know, rejected that particular um, view of of Australia. Amazing that it was so recent. Absolutely. Yes, and it was. As a, it created new precedent um, in Australia, and as Katie says, it, it rejected um, what was almost two hundred years of of a kind of a, an agreed doctrine, um, which it was that Australia was empty and uninhabited, and it it shows the capacity of of judge made law to to be quite activist um, and to strike out in a new direction um, and to really reflect the changing values of society. Um, it doesn't often. Um, the common law and judge-made law is, is often accused of lagging behind societal values, but it certainly can um, spark really new and important changes in what the law recognises. So do we need people sometimes, like the Eddie Marbos of the world, to actually take some of these um, these issues to court and, and 
get the precedent, hopefully. Is that... Well, I think you, sometimes you, you do. Uh, uh, the, one of the um, outcomes of, of that case was the introduction of the Native Title Act, which has been you know, um, governing how um, you know, Aboriginal people uh, work with... Um, or how, how they can have their... Uh, native title recognised around Australia, but also how um, how they can um, negotiate agreements with how the land can be used, that kind of thing, as well. How you know how I would say you know non-indigenous Australia uses the land if they've got to uh, negotiate things with the traditional owners of, of the country. Mm. And I think I mean I think your point there, Jed, is is really important. So much of the law when it comes to court decisions really does hinge on having an individual who's willing to go to court um, with, a, with a charismatic enough story, uh, with a set of facts that, um, that enable a particular decision to be reached. So from that perspective, like, I think in this instance, it did lead to, to statute. Um, that's usually a much cleaner um, and more... Um, intentional way of creating the law um, and it's less dependent on individuals but when you're talking about judge-made law it's very much about the individual case and having somebody who's there to be the face of that of the law because when you go to court it's very much about individuals and um, being able to demonstrate that you have the right to go to court as an individual and therefore have your have your case arbitrated. Mm. Gosh that must narrow it down an awful lot to who's, who's able to do that and whose views end up actually being represented. Yes, the question of standing, which is the legal term for being able to go to court, um, is one that has been hotly debated over probably the centuries um, because it really governs who can turn mm. up to court to have their their case heard in the very first instance. So that's... You know that's where you, that's your first hurdle, really, mm. in making a legal argument, um, and it's it's something that you can sort of track standing in terms of recognising somebody's full personhood within the law. Um, so, you know, recognising the full personhood of women and enabling women to, to not only vote but also to to go to court in their own right. Um, minority groups also had to sort of leap that hurdle of standing to get themselves recognised as human beings in the eyes of the law. So there's, yeah, the law has not covered itself in glory when it comes to acknowledging who has the right to go to court. But, um, but yeah, that's, it's a really important um, statement within the law about who matters to the law. And, and then you've got to have the um, ability to go to to court as well and generally that's a financial ability because um, you know often in these cases uh, there's um, David and Goliath isn't there in terms of ability to uh, employ um, legal representation Mm. and not only a financial ability but an intellectual ability Mm. and actually being embodied in a human body how does nature go to court for example this is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And we are talking to our lovely guests um, about all things legal. Um, and I have learnt a lot today about the law, about how laws are made, um, about values, about the changing values that we are beginning to see in Australia and about how the law struggles sometimes to keep up with those shifting values. And just before 
we went um, to the track we were talking about standing um, and this issue that you can't just turn up in a court and challenge anything you like um, so Erin and Katie tell us about what this standing means for the environment so standing for the environment has been historically really difficult so most environmental law is fairly modern and fairly new um, and most of it's statute based um, so judge made law has traditionally not respected the environment they've not really understood it they've not really known how to factor it in um, and basically judge made law focuses on on people bringing specific cases for a decision so we're talking about about statutes and we're talking about statutes that protect the environment and most of them came into being in the 1960s and 70s One of the things that they noticed almost straight away was that when it came to protecting the environment and when it came to the the environment potentially being able to enforce some of these new um, obligations that were created by this new uh, legislation, it was very difficult because the environment didn't have standing. So the environment itself couldn't turn up to court and say, well, you've polluted this river or you've polluted this this air um, and I'm here as the environment to sue you because of that. So what that meant was is that people could bring those cases. People could say, well, you polluted that, that river and that cost my business a certain amount of money. But one of the things that they very quickly saw was that pollution of a river, say, might um, destroy the habitat for many species. It might cause all kinds of fairly diverse sorts of harm. And the harm it causes to a human who uses the river is only a very small percentage of that total harm. So the ability to recover damages that actually reflect the total damage to the environment was limited to only what the damages were for the human. So, yes. This is is the problem we have today in this world, that humans put ourselves at the top of this pyramid and think, actually, we're way more important than everything else and we can only judge our impact on how it impacts us. Never mind how it acidifies the ocean and ruins the air, kills everything else, etc., etc. And that's very much because, in the eyes of the law, the environment is an object, not a subject. So it's it's an object, not a person, in the eyes of the law. And so the only way the law could deal with it is this sort of tangential approach through the impacts to people. Um, So back in 1972, an American academic was standing up in front of his property law class and at the end of the class, he just started thinking out loud, what would it mean for the environment itself to be able to go to court? What would it mean for the environment to have standing? And he did this little sort of thought experiment and then thought, actually, that's kind of a good idea. Like nobody's really put that down yet, but actually I feel like that's quite important. And there was a case before, um, I think it was the Supreme Court in the US... Was yes. it? Yes. Uh, I believe so, yes. Um, and Sierra, you're talking about the Sierra Club of Morton yes. case? Yes. Yes. So there was a specific environmental case before the court and this, this legal academic whose name is Christopher Stone wanted to be able to um, influence some of the judges who were making decisions about whether that case would proceed and, and whether there were going to be damages. And so he wrote an article that laid out the basis for giving the environment standing and he said, look, it seems unthinkable, but actually when we look back at the history of standing and the history of who we have recognised in the law as having personhood at all, 
then again, like we, we originally thought that women weren't people. We originally thought that black people weren't people. We originally thought that people with mental disabilities lacked personhood. So the concept of it being unthinkable, he said, that's, that's not an argument not to do it. And so he sort of covered that and then said, what would happen if we did give it standing? And it was basically to get over that problem that the law faces in that sort of tangential approach to assessing environmental damage. He said, if the environment can turn up to court and can show its damage, then you get two kind of outcomes. Firstly, you get an accurate assessment of what the damages actually are. And secondly, you get cases being run because the full amount of damages can be factored into the decision about whether or not to go to court in the first place. So he said it makes actually a really big practical difference if we extend standing and legal rights to the environment itself. Okay, so that was back that was back in the 70s. So what's happened? Can we do that? Is that what this rights of nature movement's all about? Is that about giving the environment this thing called standing? In some situations, yeah. Um, uh, Are we there yet? Partly, I would say we're part way there. It's it's a it's taking off, uh, and it's only really taken off in the last couple of of years. So it's one of those areas. What's changed in the last couple of years? Is it just more pressure? Is so somebody lobbying? I think a couple of things. Um, probably, yeah, one thing we need to be clear on is that standing law itself has evolved. So since mm-hmm. the 1970s, environmental law statutes have got better at creating a wider standing. So you can now have an interest in the environment itself rather than having it have to impact your business or your livelihood or some other part of your life. But again, we're Is still talking... Is that the talking... Mary Creek example that we were talking about yeah. off air? So we, we were talking... The lawyers were trying to explain to me what standing was and there was a good example about um, if I was to walk along the Mary Creek and feel like um, it wasn't good enough and I wanted to go to court and complain about it, then I wouldn't be able to go... Is that correct? Yeah, that's... And I think it would depend specifically on what what statute you're bringing suit under. But yeah, basically that's correct. Like a... I think a mere personal interest is unlikely to be enough, um, although under some statutes, and, and in New South Wales we were discussing, um, the standing law is very broad and any citizen can challenge a decision of the minister. Mm. Um, so that's so walking along the creek might be enough. But, but in if most I was cases, the president of the Mary Creek Association, I would have an interest Yes, and I would then be able to go to court on behalf of the Mary Creek. Of representing my interest in the Mary Creek. Yeah. So is that what has happened in this evolution of this, the law around standing? So the law tried to resolve this problem um, after Christopher Stone pointed it out so eloquently. Um, it tried to resolve it in two basic ways. And one way was to say, well, let's just open up standing and let more people come forward. Um, and so, you know, being the president of the Mary Creek, Friends of Mary Creek might now be enough, um, whereas historically it would not have been. The other way has been through environmental advocates arguing very strongly that the environment needs rights of its own. And if we go back to 2008, there was a big campaign in South America um, and this culminated in constitutional change in Ecuador and new legislation in Bolivia that recognised the rights of nature itself. So they said, we're going to give nature itself legal rights and we're going to empower any citizen in Ecuador, for instance, to run a case before the court um, to protect the rights of nature. But 
almost immediately we run into the problems that, that Jed was raising, I think possibly off air before, um, about the, the capacity to run legal cases. So having legal rights is a really important step, but if you just empower any citizen, then everybody can, but nobody has to. So you're then relying on specific citizens saying, well, not only do I really want to, but I have the finances and I have the capacity to actually go to court and protect nature. But because it's nobody's actual responsibility, that's a really ad hoc kind of approach. And so it can leave nature with not a lot more protection than it had before. No friends with deep pockets. Yeah, and that's that's very much what you need. Um, The other interesting thing happened when they did run a case on the basis of those rights. So there's, there was a river, the Vilcabamba River in Ecuador, and they were building a road alongside it. And that road had caused some fairly major pollution um, and impacts to the river. And so they were like, right, we're going to use these new legal rights and we're going to seek an injunction to stop these works and to restore the river. So they were successful in doing that. Um, the citizens and an NGO that was partnering with them brought the case. It was successful and the judge was like yes you've definitely got standing um and the rights of nature mean that we will hear this case and the the river definitely has a right to be a river and to not be polluted unfortunately uh the judge said well but also we have these corresponding human rights to development and human rights to economic growth and the decision ended up being a balancing act between the rights of the river and the rights of people to develop so it ended up basically in the same environmental law space that almost every environmental law decision comes out of the expression on case-based <laughs> It's just so interesting that, yeah. that it ends up as a value versus value. Yeah. And it ends up being actually way more than that because you've got somebody's individual right to make a profit off a bit of land versus the rights of nature, which keeps everybody alive, not only anim- not only humans, but our animal friends and our plant friends too. And yet that ended up in a balanced decision. Yep, yep. And it, yeah, so it was, yes, I think in terms of progressing environmental law, it really didn't in the end. And um, it ended up being incredibly difficult to enforce. And so that comes back to the issue of the capacity and the the finances, because they did get a ruling um, and there were some damages associated with it. But the judge was very careful to say, you know, the constructions can still go ahead. You just need to restore the damages that you're doing and that you've done, Um, which, as you know, is always a problem. And then, of course, the NGO was a bit like, well, now we've run out of money and we'd have to go back to court repeatedly to enforce enforce this ruling. And we end up with NGOs fighting against um, developers and mining companies and we have the... Uh, financial issues again. So, okay, back in the 70s, the guy had the idea, your man, to say... It's only 36 years ago. It's only 36. 36 <laughs> years ago. Imagine what's going to happen in the next 36 years. And then there's been uh, what uh, sounds actually, like... sorry, 46. 46, oh, yeah. I was thinking, yes, I'm a bit older. 46. It can't be that long, but it is. Yeah. Um, and then in that time, it sounds like there's been trials to see if it works. So, so I think that's set up... The, the really interesting stuff that happened last year. Um, so we had this, this thing in the 70s that said it would be really useful to give nature standing. We had this sort of trial in a couple of places in South America and very quickly learnt that rights without um, enforcement and organisational support 
aren't necessarily worth very much. So last year, some really interesting things happened around the world where rivers started getting rights of their own and these rights were starting to be backed up um, by serious organisational support and serious funding. Um, so maybe I'll throw to Katie to talk about the first case, the Wanganui River. That was, yeah, that was probably that was the very first time that a river uh, had been um, uh, given legal personhood. In fact, uh, New Zealand uh, was ahead of the ball anyway. They'd they'd already done it for um, a national park, uh, but it was the the, um, the river that was the one that uh, caught everybody's attention. Uh, and uh, this one came about. Um, as a result of um, settlement negotiations under the Treaty of Waitangi, um, it was a breach of um, Treaty of Waitangi settlement negotiations with the with the Wanganui uh, uh, iwi, the Wanganui people. And uh, part of the issue was that um, in relation to uh, rivers and to water, um, the position of, of the government, for instance, was that well, nobody. <sighs> Nobody owns it. The the um, you know the the Wanganui uh, people had said this is our our river. It's part of us. Uh, a very very well known saying, which has made its way into the the legislation itself, is um, uh, it's I am the river and the river is me. Uh, so they felt very much part of the river and they wanted to you know it's their, their, you know their country. They've been fi- they'd actually been fighting for it for many years and, you know, it's well known that there was one of the longest running legal battles in New Zealand's history to uh, to get rights to this, this river. But um, so they wanted the rights to the river, but the, um, you know, the, the government didn't want them to have the sole rights to the river. So it ended up being a, a way forward um, where the, um, the river owns itself. Wow. That's an unexpected outcome. Yes. How did that happen? Um, well, it was, it was you know, uh, part, of, part of it was that the river owns itself, but in the legislation um, the, there are certain river values to be protected and those river values are very, very Maori-oriented. Um, you read them and that one of, the, one of the values is the one that I just mentioned before, I am the river and the river is me. Um, which kind of humanises the impact slightly. It's 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 more than that. It's uh, it's uh, all to do with um, indigenous relationships with country and country by country. I'm including, you know, land and and water. It's it's not um, it's not a, a case of the environment, humans. It's all it's, it's all part of you know. It's yeah. You can't separate it out. It's not sort of you know um, humans versus the environment or anything like that. It's all comes together, um, so that was part of the you know, underlying factor, and that was one of the reasons why it was uh, it worked for the the Wanganui Ewe because it embodied the, their values um, in in the river. But it also worked for the government as well because um, the government didn't really want anybody to, didn't want anybody to own the river. So it worked for them because the river would then own itself. So what does that actually look like? Day to day, what does the river owning itself and the river having rights mean for adjacent development or somebody who wants to, or, or wash that comes in from farmlands, or what does it actually mean? Well, uh, essentially, um, the um, land and water management um, is uh, governed by the Resource Management Act, 
in in New Zealand. Uh, so if you uh, want to, um, uh, I don't know, have a business or something like that, or uh, then you have to apply for certain you know, resource consents, um, and you still have to apply to the the same entities, uh, which are your um, territorial authorities. I can't quite remember which ones, are, but they're, they're the consent the consent authorities that are that are, that are under the in the in the RMA. But now, um, what um, and it's under various pieces of legislation, not just the Resource Management Act. Now, those values um, that are embodied in the uh, Wanganui uh, River um, Settlement legislation, uh, they have to be uh, taken into account when any of those decisions, uh, um, in terms of granting resource consents and other decisions as well, whenever they're being being made. And has there been any um, decisions that have been impacted by the river having its own rights so far that you know of? Not that I know of. I think it's still it's still really really early days. Um, uh, they've only just appointed the um, the guardianship entity itself. So um, I think that's probably yeah. a really important point to emphasise. Yeah. Is that so? This is what separates um, the New Zealand example from those earlier examples. Is that there is now a guardian. There are two guardians. Um, one was appointed by the New Zealand government. One was appointed by the Maori. Um, they're actually both Maori people, as it turns out, um, and it's their job to speak for the river. So they now play a significant role in in those sorts of management decisions. Um, They are supported and kind of embedded within this uh, statutory framework that sets up a whole bunch of arrangements um, between all of the stakeholders. So there's a really big hydropower um, scheme that sits at the top of of the Wanganui River and actually diverts up to 80% of the flow from that river. So they're part of that discussion as well. The farmers are part of that discussion. Um, I think there are six different Maori groups that are all part of that discussion around how we should manage or how they should manage the river. Um, but I think, the, yeah, the biggest step is the fact that there, there is this specific guardian. They have that responsibility to speak for the river. Um, they can be held to account for speaking for the river um, and they have funding. So the New Zealand government actually allocated, I think it was $30 million of funding um, to help set up these new arrangements and to kind of give them life. So we've now got an entity that has responsibility and can be held to account for the interests of the river and that's a really significant difference. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And you are listening to Green in the Apocalypse on 3RRR. We are talking about the um, rights of natural systems. And we were just about to talk about how exciting it was that finally we have a proven case or case law, I guess it's been enshrined in law in New Zealand, and what this might mean for the future. It's super exciting. It really is. So when the New Zealand decision, and it was, it, was a, it was statute, so when it was passed by the New Zealand Parliament, headlines went around the world. It was, it was global news that a river had legal rights. And then, like, out of the blue, um, there was, within, a, within 10 days, I think there was a decision by the State High Court of Uttarakhand in India granting legal rights to the Ganges and Yamuna rivers in India. And so suddenly we had multiple rivers with legal rights. That same High Court um, followed that up very quickly with another decision granting legal rights to all of nature in the state of Utatakant. They have followed it up again just recently, um, in the last kind of month, I think, extending legal rights to all animals in Utatakant. So now animals have 
have this, the status of, of legal persons. And so, what does that mean? <laughs> what I was just thinking how ironic it would be if in Australia the environment and animals had a charter of rights before humans. Mm. <laughs> yes. Anyway, we won't go there. That's a different topic. Mm, Yeah, for another day. So what what might this, what might happen as a result of these decisions? What might change? Well, I think the, yeah, the other example I just wanted to raise was um, a decision made by the Constitutional Court in Colombia. And the reason why that one's interesting, the Indian ones are are interesting, but they're extremely activist and one of them has been appealed already. um, So we're not really sure what's going to happen there. Um, Although it did give rise to a claim that the Yamuna River had been murdered. So there is currently a police report on file in India that the Yamuna River as a person has been murdered. Um, So it's already starting to change the way that we think about and manage the environment. Um, But the the Colombian decision was really interesting. This was a river um, in the Choco in Colombia, which is an incredibly biodiverse region. And this river is central to the culture of these communities that live along that river. It's subject to a lot of illegal mining. It's got some really heavy metal pollution. And in that case, the Constitutional Court based the rights of the river on the human right to a healthy environment. So it said in order to protect people, we need to protect the river. And in order to protect the river, we need to give the river its own legal rights. So that decision was was very long. It was very, um, very painstaking in the way it constructed its arguments. But it really made that very clear that if we, if we as human beings want to live in a healthy environment, then we have to protect that environment. We have to give that environment the capacity to protect itself. So like, to me, that was a, that's a really exciting decision. It drew on the New Zealand example. Um, When the decision was being written, the New Zealand legislation hadn't actually been passed, but it was was central to their argument. Um, And so you've now got this sort of transnational jurisprudence coming together in the law to say, well, maybe this, maybe this legal rights for nature thing is actually a bit of a movement. Um, And there was another case in Colombia just sort of by a lower court that picked up that that new legal precedent um, and said to as part of protecting humans from climate change also as part of that human right to a healthy environment it has given legal rights to the amazon rainforest in colombia so it's it's creating the idea that that protecting the environment is part of protecting ourselves so when people say you know we're just a little country we can't do anything to influence climate change worldwide is little old New Zealand's had a massive influence really. Yep. And one piece of yeah, legislation. And little old Columbia um, which mm, is it's yeah. not known for being a state that, that really punches above its weight <laughs> on many levels and has many challenges all of its own but yeah it's really it's setting an agenda um, and creating really exciting legal ideas. This is exciting we might end on a positive optimistic note. Yes. That yeah. there change is possible and it might come through something that people understand, the law and the impact on the bottom line. Mm. I'm going to inject a note of caution <laughs> <laughs> because of course I am. But I think it, it is exciting and it is really, it could be really, really positive. But um, what my research shows is that actually increasing legal protection in this way can result in people deciding that now the environment can and so perhaps should have the responsibility of looking after itself. So giving the environment legal rights can very quickly create a situation where the average person thinks, well, great, can I sue the river when it floods me? And can I abdicate my responsibilities for looking after it in the first place? Because now it's got rights of its own. 
This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And Triple R is where you are on Green the Apocalypse. So I'd like to say a very big thank you to our guests, Katie O'Brien and Erin O'Donnell. Um, just before we wrap up, um, we were talking about off-air, how we need to have this values-based discussion up front when it comes to changing the law and thinking about what we can do for the environment. And Katie, um, what New Zealand did really successfully was embody the values of the Maori people into the rights of the river. And I think there's some interesting work coming up with the Yarra River and how we might be able to embody um, Indigenous rights and into that. So yeah, Yes, well, certainly the Yarra River Protection Act um, does um, embody uh, Indigenous um, cultural um, values into the legislation as it currently is. So it's Victoria's first bilingual legislation, um, wow. which, yeah, is... I find really exciting. It's incredibly well overdue, but but it is a really exciting way of, of focusing attention on those specific values. Um, the t- the title, the, the Act itself has um, uh, an Aboriginal title to it uh, and the preamble to the Act is uh, written in the Woiwurrung language, um, as, as, is the, as is the title as well. So, which is, as I say, that is a very, it's a first in, in Victoria, so it's very exciting. And may there be many more. Yeah, we'll get some people on to talk about that and maybe one or both of you guys as well. And you've both written books, you were telling us. Of course you have. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's what academics do, we write books. Um, so, yeah, so my book will be coming out um, either towards the end of this year um, or possibly early next year, and it's called Legal Rights for Rivers, and it looks at the evidence for um, basically what I was talking about before, the evidence that environmental protection might go up, but potentially the willingness to protect the environment can go down and how we might mitigate that problem. Ooh. Interesting. And yours, um, Katie. Yes, well, mine is um, coming out at around about the same time. Mine is uh, about um, Indigenous um, management, water management rights, not just another stakeholder. Uh, and it's about um, how our laws have or haven't recognised, uh, you know, Indigenous people's rights to um, be involved in water management. Well, thank you both again for coming on. And for all of the fascinating work that you do, I'm really excited to see what happens next. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.